This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Are we singing the morning after blues or watching Deja Vu all over again? I have to say this whole thing has left me with an earworm. Well, it's kind of changing inside my brain now to, uh, is that all there is? Because... 36 days and $610 million later, we're looking at a parliament that is much the same as the one we had at Disillusion. The Liberals gained three seats. By my calculation, that's $200 million a seat. And though they are still insisting that wanting a majority had nothing to do with the call, it's totally clear that Canadians remain unhappy that this election happened. Will Justin Trudeau pay a price for this? And what about Aaron O'Toole? Some of the conventional wisdom has it that he will not be able to keep his job after tacking to the center. And despite social media stardom and a good campaign, the NDP is just about back where they started from. And so is the Green Party, but with a crushing personal defeat for enemy Paul. I'd like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome our crack strategy panel, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, John Cabobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, and Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being with me. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Love that song, by the way. Okay, good. <laughs> is, is that, uh, uh, let's go around the table. We'll see what's playing in your head after this, uh, Charles. Listen, uh, it would sound like nobody had a great night. And because uh, we're back to where we were, but I I differ. I, I think uh, Justin Trude- uh, Justin Trudeau, he and his team, under regardless of all the the things that went against them with the early call, the Afghan, the feminism, the scandals, all this stuff that happened locally as well, he still won a minority, and it will stop posturing. It will stop some of the threats that the opposition were doing to try to bring it down and. And it'll enable him to pass legislation more quickly. And so, yeah, it, it, it seems like it was a waste of time, but this is going to give him another two years of, of strength. And, uh, and he's got a mandate to continue. Uh, John, do you agree? Uh, I don't. I, I, uh, I love Charles, and I, re- I respect him uh, immensely. But I do think he's a little bit off on this one. I, uh, I must say that, that, you know, no one really won this election, not least of which taxpayers who've been saddled with a $600 million tax bill uh, or, or bill that, that, as a result of this of this campaign. But, but I do think, though, and again, yes, he did win the election and he did win a minority government, but that was clearly what, not his intent. His intent was to get a majority government because he said that Parliament was broken, it was toxic, it didn't work, and, and he wanted to make sure that he had a clear mandate from Canadians to take them to the next level 
pass this pandemic. That's what he was trying to say by way of the ballot question when he first launched this campaign some 37, 37 days ago. That clearly didn't happen. You know, and I've always said on this show, too, Libby, that voters are always right, no matter what happens. And I think that Canadian voters were, were as frustrated as it is to me, but were smart because they were not happy with him. They obviously were not happy with, with Aaron O'Toole or with the Conservative campaign. And there was a lot of issues that, that happened throughout the campaign that, that caused Canadians to come back to exactly, almost, give or take a couple of seats, where they were 36, seven days ago. So I think a lot of folks didn't win on this. But I must say, though, you know, as an Aaron O'Toole supporter um, and this talk of him, you know, stepping down or, or leadership reviews, I think is absolute bunk. OK, uh, let's uh, foolish. Well, let's let's uh, let's hear Karen's quick take before we get into the nitty gritty. Karen. Yeah, I, I agree more with uh, John. I agree with Charles. Sorry, Charles. <laughs> but um, I, I don't I don't think um, any of the parties are going to give uh, the liberal Trudeau and the liberals the the, um, the kind of consideration in a minority parliament that they had benefited from over the last 20 months. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, even at the at the outset, the NDP said, listen, we're going to support the Liberals. There's no need for this election. And there was, you know, that belief that, that the NDP largely voted in lockstep with the Liberals, and they governed as if they had a majority, and they made some decisions, and they, they behaved in a way that, even though they were a minority government, they behaved as if they had a majority. And they went to the polls expecting that they would deliver on that, and they didn't. And I think that this next round is going to be much more difficult for the Liberals because they don't have a mandate from the people. They don't have, they didn't run on a mandate. They, they, you know, they ran on a mandate to get a majority government and they didn't get it. And so I think that they're going to have to do some soul searching to figure out what are they actually, what does the next two years look like? And, uh, and how are they going to get the support of the NDP or the Bloc or in some cases the Conservatives? And and we might be right back at an election in sooner than eighteen months. Oh, yes. good, yeah. good lord! I, I want to read some of the headlines, and and uh, maybe you can tell me which one you think best describes things. Okay, start with the gray Globe and Mail. Lib- liberals win another minority. National Post. Oh my God, you fell for it with a big cartoon of Trudeau. The Star. Minority retort. And the Sun. Grit happens. <laughs> okay which one do you vote for charles oh listen i i appreciate the comments by by all of us on this <laughs> but i would say this the threat of uh the another election and i am and i and i differ between the other two on this one is minimal now given what it was uh two three months ago and i think that's the win that trudeau got he is now saying okay now i I know I got a minority, but I have more strength to initiate the things I want because there's no way that the NDP or the Bloc or the Conservatives are going to want to bring this government down at this point. And that's what Trudeau wanted, is the ability to do some of the work that he needed done. Okay, well, and and a lot of people say, hey, a win is a win is a win. Now, the, yeah. the one thing that the NDP kept saying throughout the campaign is that their price for cooperation will be tax the ultra-rich. I don't even know how many ultra-rich there are, but uh, John Capobianco, do you think that Justin Trudeau will immediately turn to taxing the ultra-rich? Well, and I think uh, there's a point that Charles makes that that's right, which is to say, you know, after a minority government, nobody wants to go into another election right away. So there is a, there is a grace, which is why I think minority governments usually last about 18 months to two years. Although I think what's different about this one is that you know, at what cost 
are the liberals and Justin Trudeau going to try to keep in power? You know, th- th- this is where I think Jagmeet Singh, despite the fact that he had a kind of a great campaign, didn't gain any more seats than he did last time. But I think he's going to hold a lot of balance of power. And Justin Trudeau, because he's been weakened through this election campaign, is going to kowtow to the NDP more than ever before. So yes, you're going to see pharmacare. You're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of the promises that the NDP want, including taxing the ultra-rich, all come to fruition because Justin Trudeau is in a weakened position and he needs the NDP and the bloc, but mostly the NDP, to prop him up, Libby. So there's no doubt it's going to cost us a lot more money, uh, more than ever before. But I also I'll say one last thing, which is to say, you know, People went into this election not endorsing uh, uh, Justin Trudeau. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a huge mandate for him. So he's weakened by that. I think that we might see an election sooner because I think Canadians might be fed up with the Justin Trudeau Liberal government sooner than, than the 18 months that traditionally is the case for, for um, an election in a minority government situation. Karen, do you think we'll see those programs that have been promised for years and that didn't materialize, that they're suddenly actually going to be delivered absent another election? Yeah, it's hard to say because, again, a lot of those programs do require provincial buy-in. And, you know, even Ontario hasn't signed on to the child care opportunity yet. So it, and and I agree with John in that it's going to be very expensive for the government to to, to rely on the NDP to continue to prop up the government. And this whole notion of taxing the ultra-rich, I mean, maybe Trudeau will get away with it by saying he's going to tax profits of corporations above a billion dollars. Um, and then, you know, that will affect people's dividends. Maybe that's how he'll figure that piece of it out. I don't know. Um, but, but yeah, I don't think we're going to have a lot of strategic governing. I think it's going to be tactical. And I think that if the Trudeau government continues to hold on to its power by by basically leaning on the NDP and the NDP leans back on the Liberals, I think John's right. It could create a situation that's untenable and that that could force someone's hand. And I, and I also think that, you know, really at the outset of the election, it was, you know, who is this Aaron O'Toole person? I've never heard of him. Well, now people know him. I think that there is, you know, and they were beginning to trust him, but then some of the things worked against him, like the gun issue and the pandemic issue. And um, I, I think that there's kind of a wait and see whether or not he really is, the leader of, of, of a different tone of party or whether the party will then reassert itself as the, the, the scary beast that Trudeau made them out to be. And so I, I think that the Conservatives have some time to continue to build that trust in Canadians, um, and we'll see if, if they can deliver on that. Charles Sousa, uh, let's get to the leaders. Do you think that Justin Trudeau will pay a price for this? I've heard pundits say that they think, hey, maybe within six or eight months, the the party poobob will tell him, you know, start thinking about your future. And what about Aaron O'Toole? You know, some people say he went too far to the center. He He can't hang on. And other people are saying, no, he'll stay. What do you think? Yeah, I think... Um I mean, Justin Trudeau, he's got three elections now. He's done his bit. He's been, he's been in government. He's been elected for some time. And he's young. I, I suspect he's now sort of broken some records that he was achieving. And I, I think he will have some succession as we go forward for him. And, and then he'll go out with his head high, I believe. I, I, could, I am concerned the same as uh, both panelists in regards to the sustainability of government and the sustainability of the finances in being able to afford some of the measures that are being put forward. I am not in favor of uh, increasing the tax on rich or anybody else for this matter. I'm more 
concern about diversifying economic growth and different ways of generating revenue uh, for future generations and minimizing some of the costs. I don't believe some of the programs that are out there are actually quite affordable. I mean, they're, they are constraining, I believe, some of what we may want to go forward. And when it comes to O'Toole, listen, I, I think it's right to be more centric. I think more progressive is best. I think the majority of Canadians are in that um, that uh, you know that issue, and, and most of them obviously are because of the way the numbers are playing out. But he feels, and I guess some of the social conservatives feel betrayed by some of his his, his, his abilities or what he was provided, pro, pro, proposing. I think he'll stay. I think he will win it over, and uh, he will have to be a bit more uh, centric and, and stop some of the PPC. I mean, they lost because the PPC gained. And to the extent that uh, the moderates were, were, were uncertain as to where the conservatives are going, and they parked themselves back with, with the liberals. That's how I see it. Well, yeah, I, I think um, my take is I, I think he lost uh, at the end because of the pandemic and his refusal to criticize Jason Kenney when even Jason Kennedy apologized, and his refusal to come out for ma- vaccine mandates and, and anything like that. I think that hurt him with those centrist people. But, uh, John, I mean, a lot of people interpret his conciliation speech as saying, hey, I'm here to stay as leader. How do you see it? Uh, it was clearly that, Libby, there's no doubt. I think that, you know, it, it would make sense for him to do that. I think that there's a lot of pluses. He, he's, you know, his popular vote uh, increased and, and surpassed the Liberals. Uh, you know, he matched the seats of, of last time, you know, give or take one. Um, but I also think that people need to realize that, you know, Aaron O'Toole was elected leader some year ago uh, in, in the, during the pandemic. And when we've had this discussion on this program a number of times, all of us, about how, you know, as, as an opposition leader in, during a pandemic, uh, you just don't get the coverage in the airtime that you normally would because a lot of the things are focused on on government decisions being at the provincial or at the federal level. So Aaron didn't get a lot of attention uh, and wasn't getting a lot of you know popular votes. And his numbers were always about 10 points behind the prime minister when it came to likability or who you want as a prime minister, which is one of the reasons why the prime minister went in election mode. So the fact that he closed that gap, both on the popularity side and on the who, who makes the best prime minister, uh, over the course of the 36-day campaign is a huge accomplishment. And why would a, the party, us, uh, the party, literally throw that away um, for the sake of, of trying to get somebody new and better and fresher when we might be in an election in 18 months? I think it's foolish. I think we need to stick with Aaron O'Toole. I think he's done a good job. He'll tweak and learn from some of the mistakes he made during the campaign, and he'll be better for it. Uh, why would the party do it? They have a history of doing it, Karen, Karen Stins. <laughs> so does that speak to you saying, hey, it's not your grandfather's conservative party? Yeah, and I think, well, right now, the Conservatives, this isn't about Aaron O'Toole. This is about the heart and soul of the party. And so if the party believes that they have to shift and be, become more of a centrist, moderate, forward, progressive-looking party, then they're going to stay with Aaron. And and I think they should. I share John's view that they should stay with Aaron O'Toole because given where he started and where he finished, I, I think that he's made incredible gains. And But if, if the party in its wisdom decides that it wants to tack a different direction, then I don't think Aaron has any legitimacy in that role. Um, but then that's a party that's going to, you know, maybe alienate some of the support that it just gained. Well, yeah, I mean, the other thing is uh, when he ran for the leadership, he ran on the right. So a lot of people, I think, with some justification saying, well, you know, what is this guy about? Yeah, but I think it's, there's, there are different dynamics. Running for the leader of the party 
is a different dynamic than running for to be prime minister of the country, right? And so I don't, I'm not that worried or fussed that he he may have made a different um, pitch to to the conservatives that that voted for him to be leader than he made to the general people to make as a pitch to be prime minister. Okay, I'm going to take a couple of calls, beginning with John in Peterborough. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Just another election that people didn't get to vote in. Their their votes were wasted. This system has to go with a ridiculous, nonsensical system that only Canada and Britain use. When these young people turn to you and say, no, why should I vote? My vote doesn't count. They're right. These votes are all wasted. One tracking place, can't put the numbers at, 55 million votes wasted on the elections day, day that they tracked. This has to go. We don't have it doesn't 55 matter to me who wins, but <laughs> this system has to go. And now before you start telling me about the, um, the uh, what do you call it, the governments that we have, this happens in every country. And it works. The PR system works. Every vote counts. I I would, uh, thanks, John, for your call. I would uh, beg to differ on that, having spent some time covering politics in, in Israel, the the PR system, pub, proportional representation does not work so well. They, of course, had four elections in the space of a year, um, and they have a, a coalition government that is shocking everybody by staying t- together. So, uh, and, and, and here's an interesting thing, panel. Um, at the end of the campaign, Trudeau even intimated that he would revive the broken promise for proportional representation. The first thing I thought was, Maxime Bernier, step right up. Charles, what do you think? Yeah, and that's the worry, right? You're going to have some fringe individuals get up there. Um, and, you know, there is a regional divide as a result of some of the things that we've got going. But I am not in favor of proportional representation for the very same reasons you've indicated that's happened in some other countries and even other uh, levels of government. Um, and, and that's probably why the first past the post system is still there because it, it allows uh, governments to exist and, and things to be made. And it happens to the benefit of, both, of all parties. Sometimes it, it works in the favor of the liberals, sometimes it works in the favor of the conservatives. It certainly did so in the, in the provincial election. So I, I, I wouldn't mess with it. Uh, let's go to James in Etobicoke. Hello, James. Oh, hi. Um, I just wanted to ask what the panel would think. Um, it seems to me talk of an election in, eight, in 18 months is unrealistic. I believe the New Democrats won't want to be tagged with, with causing an election. So probably it'll be a natural uniting of the left for the next three years. But my question for the panel is, do they ever see a time when, the, if you will, the left will unite, in other words, a new party with the liberals and the NDP, similar to the way Stephen Harper and Peter McKay did for the conservatives? Uh, interesting question, James. I'm going to let you go and let the panel answer. Uh, who wants to take that one, Karen? Uh, yeah, I think, well, sorry, I, I don't think that there is a natural merger between the liberals and the NDP, because I think they have different philosophical roots and different governing principles. And um, although there was a, a, the Unite the Right effort led by uh, Peter McKay, actually, it was because the Conservatives as a party split and splintered, and then he led that effort to bring the family back together. So I think that there is, like, there, it's not 
exactly analogous. And um, and I I don't as I say I, like I think the NDP have as much power now as they're ever going to have. And so <laughs> why would they merge with the Liberals? John, do you agree? Well, well, having been involved quite intimately with the Reform Alliance Conservative merger back in the day, it's not an easy process. And I know that there's been always a lot of talk of of that that issue whenever there's whenever there's a big splitting of the votes, you know, between the Liberals NDP and Charles and all this, because there's always talk about having some level of merges. It'll never happen. There is, to Karen's point, there's a very very distinct parties from the perspective. Uh, they do share the progressive side of it, but there are some very, very um, um, progressive NDP supporters who would never uh, go to the Liberals and, and vice versa. There are some moderate blue Liberals, of which Charles is one, that would never sort of, you know, be be adaptable or comfortable with a lot of the NDP policy. So it wouldn't happen. Uh, and, um, you know, I think what we'll see is a lot of the campaign that we saw, which is the prime minister will always appeal to the progressive votes to scare People are saying that, oh, the Conservatives are going to win. Stop that by joining them, which is what we saw a little bit happen this time around as well. Uh, I want to bring up another issue, and we've talked about it before, and that is uh, women in politics, the kind of abuse they face. It was really disheartening for me to watch the way the Green Party leader, Annie Paul, was treated. Uh, including by her own party, uh, the the some of the defeated liberals are women, uh, and uh, then there's that candidate in Spadina Fort York who was removed at the eleventh hour, but still got in because uh, of sexual assault charges, which were dropped. Um, you know, uh, Karen. How do you see that? Is is politics a better place for women now, or is it worse or the same? Uh, I mean, I, I only have my own lived experience to really reflect on, and um, it, and, it, and again, it's 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 um, you know the context is in municipal politics, not federal politics or provincial, where there's parties, and uh, that we had a city council that had you know enough, enough women in it that it wasn't. Um, I, I, I never felt singled out or um, disadvantaged, but you know, certainly in the party structure, I can see how um, women can—they can be disadvantaged. And there is no question; it's a tough life. Po- politics is a tough life, whether you're a man or a woman, and it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's hard no matter what gender you are. Charles. Um. Yeah, and I've worked with some very extraordinary women in politics. Um, very smart, very meticulous, very informed, hardworking. And they almost have to do even more, it seems, to in order to exceed or have some degree of success in politics. But they're also subject to a lot of social hate and media and nonsense and, and misin- misinformation. Uh, and it is it is tough out there for any for anybody. As, as Karen noted, it's man or woman, be it as it may. Politics is a tough sport. But um, I'm encouraged by the fact that more women are stepping up. I'm encouraged by some of the leadership of some of the women that are there. I'm dismayed by some of the attacks against men at times when they are taken away from politics for certain reasons. And it's and the scandals that exist infuriate me because no one should be subject to those uh, those, those those who are survivors and victims of these initiatives infuriate me. I get infuriated when I feel I'm being strong-armed by a guy for, 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 for things that he is misinformed by. I can't imagine what it must be like for some of the women that have to deal with that nonsense all the time. 
But I'm encouraged that they're standing up. I'm encouraged that there's more representation. And yeah, some people lose, some people win, but that's in politics everywhere. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Carolyn in Halliburton. And Carolyn, you want to talk? You want to talk a bit about the process, which uh, was very good in some places and very, very bad in others. Carolyn, go ahead. Oh, thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Um, Libby, I'm calling in because I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work um, uh, one of our local polls, and it was a very interesting perspective to look at things from an operational side. But what I wanted to say was that I was so pleased and happy that there were so many young people that came out, many of them for the very first time. The registration desk was busy from dawn to dusk with new voters registering. Plus, I talked to a whole lot of people who had not voted in years really? and were coming back to make a statement. And I found that was really interesting. Obviously, we didn't get into who they were voting for, but the fact that they did come back. And then I look at the results, which say the PCs got the popular vote. And this is something that has always perplexed me. The popular vote does not dictate who the government is. So looking down the road a little bit, what does that really mean? All these people that voted for the first time came out after many years, and their vote, does it count? Does it matter? Um, this, back to the comment from a previous gentleman, and I'm thinking, I disagree with you, all votes count. But with our current system, where popular vote does not dictate the government, um, I question that a little, and I'd be interested to hear um, others' comments on this, but I just wanted to share the fact that the, there were a lot of new people coming out, and it's really great to see, and I have a lot more respect for the process now than okay. I ever did before, looking at it from the, I guess you could call it the inside. Thanks, Carolyn, for your call, and uh, that's a good experience. I'm always glad to hear that we saw some terrible experiences, notably in Spadina, Fort York, and late last night in Vaughan, where after the polls closed, there was a huge lineup. Uh, I'm sure those people got to vote, but they waited a long time. In Spadina, Fort York, there were people who did not get their voting cards, and then the website of Elections Canada was down, so they could not easily find out where their poll was. Uh, and then they had these huge lineups, and to top it all off, a lot of them weren't av- aware that that the the person listed at the liberal as the liberal candidate was no longer the liberal candidate. So um, let's just finish up with some thoughts on the process in this expensive pandemic election, John? Well, uh, you know, listen, I, I think Elections Canada did a great job despite, you know, all of the, all of some of the problems that we're having, given, given the circumstances. I think they obviously wanted a longer writ period uh, than what the Prime Minister decided to do. So they were up against a huge uh, challenge from that perspective. But I think all in all, a lot of people were, uh, were able to vote. Uh, mail-in ballots are still being counted. Advanced polls work. So hopefully that, that all worked despite all of the challenges. I, I give credit to Elections Canada for what they were able to do. Charles Souza? Yeah, I agree with uh, John. They didn't have a lot of preparation, and uh, there was always that notion that they have may have an early election, uh, and they had to respond uh, quickly. And I know a number of them here in my community that did a great job of trying to mobilize staff and and, and make it a, you know available. There was there was hiccups throughout, but in the end, 
um, they got it. They got through it. And you want a quick election because, I mean, in the end, we would be complaining if we were still there, <laughs> you know, during a pandemic. So the idea was try to get it out of the way as, as quickly as possible. But, um, yeah, I mean, elections in Canada had very little to work with, and they managed to pull it through. Karen, do you agree? Uh, yeah, I actually worked at a poll last night in my own uh, riding. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it was really, it was actually great. It's the first time I've ever done it. And, uh, and I will share, I think, Don feedback in that a lot of younger people voted and it, that was great to see they were coming with friends they were coming with their parents um they were you know at university asking their parents you know where do i vote and how do i do this and they were getting it getting out to do that and exercise their 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 franchise and i thought that was a of everything out of this election that was probably one of the most positive things to see my 19 year old daughter voted for the first time she was excited about it <laughs> oh glad to hear that uh let's just give everybody 20 seconds uh well there's no bottom line yet i think we'll be parsing this for weeks to come but starting with charles uh, what would you like to leave us with well i was a bit dismayed by the splinter groups and some of the extreme factions of our society where they held a voice and they fought and they you know the anti-vax and uh, all the anti-climate stuff, all that, and and it was cruel. There was a lot of hate in social media, and it worries me because we were never that way 20 years ago. And that mood and that change and that 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 callous way is concerning me. And people rejected it. In the end, people rejected that kind of activity. Uh, I think they are, uh, you know, democracy is working. People get out and vote. More people that are out than before. I'm encouraged by that. The results haven't changed much, but I think Trudeau has a bit more staying power as a result. John, your 20 seconds. Well, I think that this election sort of caused the politicization of vaccines and and, uh, and the pandemic, which is unfortunate. But to your earlier comment about anime, Paul, uh, I'm shocked by how she was treated before the election campaign, during the election campaign. And I'm sure uh, after the election campaign that we just saw, and I'm not sure if she's going to survive, but she spent a lot of time in Toronto Centre, and to come in fourth is, is a shame because she should be somebody that should be in Parliament. Uh, I, I certainly agree with that. Karen, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, just quickly, just I, I do hope that the Conservatives see the opportunities that they have to rebuild their brand and uh, that they don't go on this path of, you know, eating their own because it, it'll it'll just end up, I think, very badly for the Conservatives. And uh, but that they see this as a, as a as a way to rebuild, and that they take advantage of it. Okay, uh, that pretty well sums it up. I'm sure we'll still be talking about this next week. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, thanks, Libby. Thanks, everyone. Okay, talk talk soon. Uh, People, if we could not get to your calls, Free For All Friday is coming up. And uh, who knows, we may still be talking about the election before that. Right now, we're going to take a quick break and we are going to talk about the whole issue of booster shots of vaccines. There was an FDA ruling late last week while we were preoccupied with this election. So we will drill down on all of that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Turning to the pandemic. Late last week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration decided not 
to offer booster shots of vaccine to the general public, instead limiting them to people 65 years old and older and those who are immunocompromised. This is very different from the approach in Israel, which to a certain extent is serving as the world's clinical trial because they vaccinated so much of their population so early. Now, they are in the midst of giving boosters to younger age groups now that the over 60s are done. And this because According to their data, the Pfizer vaccine, which they used almost exclusively, uh, wanes after six months. And right now, only people who have a third shot can enter the country without quarantining. And as an aside, the, the FDA ruling is a bit of a political issue there with the prime minister writing an essay in The Economist, arguing it wasn't a slap in the face to Israel, but uh, that he believes the Americans will come around when there's more evidence and also saying that if the booster shots aren't given out, then that risks losing the gains made by vaccination. So uh, at the bottom line, the bottom line question is, what does this mean for us here? Let me give the numbers out again, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in Dr. Alone Vaseman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist and faculty member at the Dalalana School of Public Health. Uh, let's begin with Dr. Jha, your, your reaction to this. I think the FDA made the right call. We're getting too jumpy about boosters based on too limited evidence. And the big picture is really quite clear. First, the vaccines, almost all of them, protect much better against severe infection and hospitalization than they do against any infection. And all of them work. That includes they, they work against severe disease caused by alpha or by delta and that the effectiveness lasts for several months. So that's quite clear. And the key issue here is we have to reach the unvaccinated. Even in a high coverage setting like in Canada, most of the new infections and the risk of severe disease is occurring in the unvaccinated. That should be our only focus. Boosters are a bit of a distraction. Do you agree, Dr. Vaisman? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Based on the hard data that we have, there isn't really good proof to say that an entire nation, including those who are younger, need to have at their dose. The cases that we're seeing among the vaccinated are not not among that group. Those who are not responding well, generally speaking to the vaccine, are those who are elderly or those who have no immune compromised status. So, as Dr. John mentioned, the, the sensible approach here in Canada is to focus on the third doses for the most vulnerable but focusing on remaining on getting vaccines for the rest of the younger population to complete their vaccination rather than aiming for a third dose in those people. What they found in Israel, and they are ahead of us, right? Um, we haven't reached the five or the six month mark. Uh, they, they are blaming part of their huge spike in infections in the fourth wave on the waning of the vaccine, even though 
to be fair, there are fewer serious cases and, and they have, you know, much, much, much less hospitalization than, uh, than we saw in earlier waves. So doesn't that sort of prove that, that the immunity does wane, even though it still protects against the most serious disease? Dr. Ja? The Israel data are, uh, very much welcome, but you have to take it with a, a considerable grain of uh, grain of salt. First of all, it's a very much a older age distribution with uh, you know, lots of people with uh, chronic disease. Their rollout of vaccines was very different than we had to do in Canada. And in fact, there's some evidence, but I wouldn't uh, bet the farm on it, that the Canadian spacing being further apart, which had was driven by necessity, might actually give you more sustained response. The hmm. reasons for why the Israel rebound aren't all clear. Um, and in fact, there's some funny things in the data, like they shop, saw protection in people vaccinated in uh, January and February, but not in March and April. So there's just, it, you, have, you have to be careful with these data because they're not randomized trials where you have a really rigorous evidence. These are administrative data, and they have biases that can really lead to some quirky things. Now, in fact, one of the missed opportunities for, for Canada is why, why are we looking at Israeli data? Why, wouldn't, why didn't Canada get its data act together <laughs> at the federal government? and at the provincial government. Oh, well, I, I'm going to answer my own question. It's because of poor federal leadership on the topic and because there was so much concern about the privacy commissioners in each province jumping up and down saying, oh, privacy, privacy. I think most Canadians would say, you know, uh, you, can, you can have my data. Let's just get over this goddamn epidemic. So, <laughs> yeah, so we, we, we really, I, I still hope that is built because we think that, the challenge of COVID is going to be a multi-year challenge. And uh, this is the other argument that we hear about uh, boosters, that it'll prevent variants. But that's like driving a car by looking in the rearview mirror. Most of the variants um, that are going to be potentially threatening the vaccines are yet to evolve. So the right strategy would be to get boosters developed for new variants, not for the stuff that already uh, we've been widely infected with. And that's exactly what we do with the flu shot. You know, we look forward to saying, well, how can we, uh, how can we protect against flu? So we need smart strategies and not to be jumpy based upon really quite a limited set of evidence from one country. That's just the wrong way to do science. Uh, Dr. Weissman, again, uh, do you agree or uh, what do you think of uh, the Israeli prime minister saying, hey, they'll come around to it? Yeah, it's certainly possible at some point in the future we will all need boosters, but it seems very premature to say that at this point that even young people need boosters. You know, this could be a year away or something like that. But it's an interesting point that Dr. John made about the space in the vaccine. If you compare the UK yeah. and their experience, their hospitalizations are very low. Their cases did jump, but it's interesting to see that the UK used AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca their space is 12 weeks. Israel used Pfizer, they vaccinated very quickly and used an interval of three weeks. And Canada is somewhere in between for some of our population. So our experience here may be in part both because there is probably a benefit in the long term of spacing out your vaccines as opposed to doing it very quickly. 
because you sacrifice some short-term gain for long-term gain in that sense. So that may explain why so far our way here in Ontario and in Canada, or more specifically Ontario, our fourth wave hasn't been as bad. But we'll see. I mean, we could go out of direction. Just wait, is what I say. Dr. Judd, just following up on that uh, before we take a break. So their data in Israel is all based on Pfizer. So a lot of people, particularly people in uh, a somewhat older age group, got AstraZeneca here. And interesting what you've been saying about the spacing. I had actually uh, heard that before, but... Do you think there's any difference in the length of immunity because of the very different technology that the vaccines have? A recent review by some experts in the Lancet looked at uh, all the studies, you know, with their caveats, and found that uh, almost all of the vaccines work quite well against severe disease and less so against um, having any infection. But that was the whole goal of the the vaccination program was to make sure that we're not dropping dead and we're not overrunning the hospitals, and particularly in the elderly. So if you uh, if you look now at the evidence, some of it is produced based on antibody tests, and um, that's useful. But you have to remember that your body's immune system doesn't just have antibodies; they have this other type called memory responses, cell-mediated immunity, which are much longer lived. And from our own study, our national uh, antibody study in Canada, where we've shown that people who got naturally infected, not through the vaccine, but naturally infected, had antibodies pretty stable up to seven months. Now, that's natural infection. Not very many were infected in Canada. Now you add on the fact that more than 70% of Canadians have got the double vaccine, the vaccine response is way bigger than a natural infection. So that actually, we're studying this now. We hope to have some data in the next few months. But that points to the, the really important and just almost miraculous um, response that these vaccines have. So, and I do worry a little bit about the messaging that comes out that says, oh, you need boosters. Well, then some people say, well, look, I told you the stuff wasn't good. Uh, you need three shots. And, and no, we're confusing the public by not keeping on the core thing, which is if you haven't got the vaccine and 600,000 Ontarians still don't have the vaccine, get the vaccine. So we're muddling the waters, uh, waters a little, muddling the waters a little too much here with unclear science. Okay, um, we have got to take a break. We will be back with more on this on this question of booster shots. Uh, we still have to tackle with the recommendation in the states that people over sixty five get it. Um, I want to see what that means for us here when we come back. And by the way, before we go to break, four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six. 740-4740 if you have comments or questions about this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking to Dr. Prabhat Jha and Dr. Alon Vaisman about the whole issue of booster shots that would be a third shot of vaccine. Late last week, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration said it is not necessary for the general population, but they did 
authorize it for people over 65 and people who are immunocompromised. Should we expect a similar directive here? And do you see that as saying all people over 65 should get it or it's their choice? Uh, Dr. Vaseman, how do you see that? Yeah, I think um, so. The Ontario Health released their document just yesterday about the recommendations for vaccination. And we are headed towards having that population vaccinated starting with the groups who are living in congregate settings, long-term care facilities, and then, of course, the immunocompromised group. So I think for the group who is over the 65, it it certainly will make sense for those people to be vaccinated, and it will be part of the campaign that will roll out now in the fall and uh, for the reasons that were outlined earlier. And it it is important to focus on this group rather than the younger individuals. Makes sense what the FDA said. And uh, it's certainly, as I said, it's certainly possible that the younger group will be required to get boosters in the future, but it's, it's very early to say that that's needed at this point. Dr. Judd, you agree uh, we're going to see this for people over 65? Oh, well, I, I do think that certainly for the immunocompromised populations. That that's already happening sense. now. Yeah. My mother, my dear mother, age 76, who's immunocompromised, has had a third dose, and that makes sense. If we keep the goal of saying we want to prevent... Um, certainly the catastrophe that occurred in long-term care homes, and we want to keep the elderly out of hospital in the ICUs, then it does make sense to think carefully. I personally would like to see a strategy where we have um, boosters, as they're introduced, uh, really try to focus more on the next generation of uh, variants that uh, they're addressing. So that would mean some patience in and trying to encourage the pharmaceutical companies to say, well, look, don't look in the rearview mirror, look forward as to what's down the line and what kind of potential variant specific vaccines could be eligible in boosters. Uh, but that's going to require a patience, which I think, given what the U.S. is doing, a lot of Canadian public health officials will be a little too hesitant to do um, you know, so I think we are moving, uh, as Dr. Weissman said, to 65-plus vaccination. Yeah, and, uh, you know, 65-plus, that seems to be the cutoff, but, you know, 65 these days uh, is not particularly old, I think, physiologically. Am I wrong? No, no, I'm I'm uh, close to 60. Uh, some days I feel 65, but... What does I think, it feel uh, like? Yeah, well, no, <laughs> I don't think it's so bad. No, it's not so bad. But I, I do think we've got to be really careful and make sure that the core message remains the 600,000 Ontarians uh, that don't have uh, a single vaccine, the eligible um, uh, adult population. So that's really our priority. That's the source of most of the new cases. That's the source of even transmission into vaccinated populations comes from unvaccinated contacts. So that's what we really should have as a single goal. Um, right. But quite quite frankly, I, I mean, <laughs> my take on that is, you know, everybody who wants a vaccine has probably got one. And th- that number of people are people who uh, really don't want a vaccine. And, and unless uh, there's some pretty compelling reasons why they have to, if they haven't got one because of a vaccine passport coming in tomorrow, then, uh, you know, I kind of think, oh, I don't know how you're going to get those people. I know that's a different subject, Dr. Vaseman. Yeah, um, you're right. Uh, by now, certainly anyone who would have wanted one 
caught a vaccine would have gotten one. And you hope that the passport, and really the, the point of the passport could be in non-critical settings like hospitals or schools, the point of it should be to encourage people to get vaccinated so that people don't feel excluded or that they want access to certain things like restaurants or bars or clubs or that kind of thing. So I do hope that when it rolls out, we will see a bump soon enough from the, that group of people who have decided not to get vaccinated so far. Yeah, it rolls out tomorrow, and, and a lot of people find it quite astonishing that you need a vaccine pes- passport to uh, go to a concert or a restaurant, but if in, in a long-term care home, it's up to the care home. They don't, they're not required by the government. I mean, uh, I, I, I don't want to get onto a whole other tack, but a lot of people find that pretty uh, incredible, Dr. Well, Joe. Yeah, we should have a 100% requirement for healthcare workers. It's just immoral to think that you would put health, the people you look after at risk. Um, you know, there's, there's no black and white here. There's just, uh, there's only black and white. There's no gray. You absolutely need all healthcare workers to be vaccinated. Yeah, that's, and that's not happening. I mean, you know, there have been outbreaks of vaccinated frail elders infected by unvaccinated healthcare workers still in the fourth wave. I mean, to me, it, I, I, it just boggles the mind. Yeah, so we need to focus on the things that are successful. I, I'm overall optimistic, Libby. I think the Delta uh, variant wave is, is more modest than we had feared. And uh, it needs the strategies that have worked to continue, um, particularly getting vaccines up. The other part, which isn't doesn't get much attention, is that we really need to scale up rapid testing and have that widely available, even among vaccinated populations, uh, like the University of Toronto is doing. Even if you're vaccinated, you're worried you can get a rapid test. Now just drop in and you get one. So those uh, sets of strategies, I think, will help us uh, um, survive the, the fourth wave. But downstream, if we're looking a year or two ahead and COVID is still around, then the strategy has to be moved to a very science-based vaccination strategies, which will look a lot like our flu shot program. So that has to be forward-looking. Um, but, and, but that's, you know, COVID is a long haul. It's not going to be just this winter and we're past it. It's, it's a much longer proposition. Uh, we are running out of time. Dr. Vaisman, do you expect uh, our authorities to roll out this vaccination for people over 65 anytime soon? Uh, yeah, I mean, it could be as we start to roll with the long-term care facility, the congregate settings who have a lot of overlap with the immunocompromised individuals, I think this could be rolling out in the late fall, I, I hope, because the data will start to accumulate and we will still see more um, admissions as the numbers start to rise. The thing is, when cases rise in the community, it uncovers who the most vulnerable are. When you have a low low status of cases, let's say in July, we don't really know who the most vulnerable are, who didn't respond to the vaccine, but we will start to see that in October with cases rising. So that will prompt there to be more of a push to get those individuals vaccinated. Okay, uh, we are out of time on this uh, very interesting question. Thank you so much, Dr. Prabhat Jha and Dr. Alon Vaisman. You're welcome, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.